Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. I hope you all enjoyed your 4th of July holiday weekend. I know festivities were a little light this year, but these days especially, it's so nice to have a break from the routine. And as we ease back into the work week, which it's never easy, we're focusing on an area of lease accounting where we've recently been seeing a lot of questions pop up, and that would be impairment considerations for right-of-use assets. To help us understand what companies need to think about in this area, today I'm joined by Andreas Ohl, a PwC national office partner and frequent friend of the show, and first-time guest, but long-time listener, Steve Dolph, a director in PwC's national office. So with that, let's get to answering some ROU asset questions. Steve and Andreas, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk about a topic where I know the accounting has changed in the past few years, and that's important because it's an area where we've been getting a lot of questions recently, given the current economic environment. And that's talking about lease impairments. And so, Steve, maybe to kick things off, can you give us some background on what's changed in the lease impairment model? Yeah, sure, Heather. So prior to adopting ASC 842, which is the new lease standard, operating lease termination costs were accounted for under ASC 420 which is really the accounting guidance that covers exit and disposal costs. And so because under the old lease standard, operating leases weren't recognized on your balance sheet, there was really no need to consider the impairment of a lease, right? So instead, lessees would only recognize a liability for future lease payments with certain considerations for potential sublease rental income factored in only at the time that they actually seized use of the lease property. However, with the new lease standard, um, obviously right-of-use assets are now recognized on your balance sheet and so, therefore, those assets are now within the scope of the long-lived assets impairment guidance. So, Andreas, this is a topic you and I have been talking about a lot recently on a recent podcast and the webcast. So, what can you share with this audience just to give us an overview of that long-lived asset impairment model? Sure. Maybe just a quick recap of uh, how the model works. So, remember, the, the way it's designed is that you don't test assets individually generally. You typically test them as a part of an asset group. So the right of use asset for an operating lease is going to have to be assigned to a uh, an asset group. The impairment test actually only happens when there's a trigger and the trigger is something has happened that would indicate that the fair value of the asset group is less than its carrying value. That's normally done through a cash flow model. So once you have a trigger, you then have a two-step test. So the first step is you're comparing the carrying value of the asset group to the undiscounted cash flows of the asset group kind of in its, in its current use. And then if you fail that test, then you go to step two, where you actually measure the impairment. And that impairment's measured as the excess of the carrying value over the fair value of the asset so, Andreas, when you explain it, it sounds very straightforward. However, I know it's always more complicated than that. And especially in the case where we're applying it to right-of-use assets, I know there's a lot of nuances. So, Steve, why don't we start by talking about some of the most important considerations for companies when they're applying this to their right-of-use assets? Sure. Yeah. So, Andreas mentioned uh, asset groups. And I think one key thing to think about just from the outset is the interplay of asset groups under the long-lived asset standard 
and lease components under the leasing standard. So as Andreas mentioned, long-lived assets are tested for impairment at the asset group level. And that's the lowest level at which there are largely independent, um, identifiable cash flow. On the other hand, lease accounting is applied at the lowest component level. So this is a different concept than asset groups. Um, So you determine your lease components by considering the nature and interdependency of the assets covered by the lease. And so what can happen here is that you can have one single lease agreement that could actually have multiple lease components. So to illustrate this concept, consider a a lease corporate campus that has certain facilities that are used for R&D activities, others that are maybe used for uh, manufacturing activities, and others that are used for just corporate and, and administrative offices. So it's possible that in this scenario, you have one single lease agreement for the corporate campus, but you actually have multiple lease components because each of those um, each of those uses are, are functionally independent. And so what that means from a lease accounting standpoint is that you would have to apply lease accounting separately for each of those components. And so if we bring this back to the, uh, the long-lived asset impairment model, what you need to do is after you figure out your lease components, you need to then allocate them out to your asset groups and then proceed with the, with the uh, impairment testing model that Andreas mentioned earlier. Okay. And I know we've talked before about the importance of identifying asset groups in an impairment model. So this just adds one more step, which is to make sure and then go back to your lease accounting and make sure you've got your components right. So if you've done both of those two things, what are some other common questions that we receive around applying this impairment model to RU assets? One common question that we receive is how lessees should think about their operating lease liabilities when they're performing their impairment testing. So in other words, should those lease liabilities be included in the carrying value of the asset group being tested for recoverability and ultimately when measuring the fair value of that asset group in step two? And so the good news here is that lessees actually have a policy election and they can choose from one of two options. Option number one, uh, they would include those operating lease liabilities and the carrying value of the asset group. Um, and they would also include the associated operating lease payments and the cash outflows. Alternatively, they could exclude the carrying amount of the lease liabilities from the asset group. And they would also exclude the operating lease payments from their cash flows for step one. So Steve, anytime I hear accounting policy election, the question I always ask is, do you have to apply it consistently? So what it, what's the answer here? You do, particularly you want to maintain consistent application and assumptions within your asset groups, because at the end of the day, as long as you're maintaining consistency between your inclusion of lease liabilities and your cash flow assumptions, there really shouldn't be an impact on the recoverability or ultimately the fair value of the asset, um, as long as you maintain that, you know, apples to apples comparison. So it really is important to me uh, maintain consistency between those two assumptions when performing the testing. So, Steve, that's helpful. Just one question, though, because you are focused on consistency within the test, right? So you have to make sure you have this apples to apples. But what if I have the unfortunate circumstance where I have more than one impairment test, either between periods or you know more than one in, in one period? Do I have to treat each of those the same? I think typically we see that companies do apply the the policy election consistently, although it's really not required. Because remember, at the end of the day, as long as you're maintaining consistency between including the lease liabilities and your cash flow assumptions for your asset group, there shouldn't be a, a different outcome for the recoverability of the asset group. So ultimately, if a company wanted to, they could they could make that policy election differently for each asset group that they were testing. But again, in practice, I think we see a, a consistent policy applied. 
Yeah, maybe just one thing to add. We've been speaking about how to uh, apply this in step one. In uh, you know, step two of the impairment test, where you're in the fair value model, you really need to include all cash flows because a market participant is going to look at all of the cash out of pocket they're going to have for leases in place, as well as uh, subsequent leases that may need to be signed in order to continue to generate the cash flows that uh, are planned for the asset group. So, Andreas, that's an interesting point. Steve, then back to you with a question. Since, as Andreas pointed out in step two, you have to include all the cash outflows anyway, is it easier to just make that election in step one as well? Yeah, I think in some cases it certainly could be, uh, particularly, you know, if it's, if it's operationally easier for companies to kind of maintain the information that way, uh, that would be an option. But I think ultimately, you know, it's, it's kind of going to be a facts and circumstances type determination. Okay, great. Why don't we move on then to another area where I know we get questions, which is around variable lease payments. So many, many leases have these types of payments. How are they considered when you're performing your ROU impairment testing? Sure. Yeah. Great question. So um, although these variable lease payments are generally not included when you initially measure your right of use asset and lease liabilities under ASC 842, variable lease payments should actually be included when performing impairment testing under ASC 360. And so the reason for this is that 360 is assessing recoverability and ultimately fair value from an economic and cash flow perspective. And so as a result, estimates of variable lease payments, uh, they represent real economic cash outflows to the entity itself when performing step one, and ultimately to a market participant when performing step two. And so this is a pretty critical point because uh, variable lease payments can be really significant in certain industries, you know, for example, in the retail or hospitality industries that have really large percentage of sales-based rents. Um, so this could have a really material impact on, on the outcome of your impairment test. Yes, definitely. Just one more thing to think about. And I guess on that note then, Andreas, how about from a fair value perspective? What are some of the other key considerations companies should think through? Yeah, so Heather, one of the things that comes up a lot is how to think about discount rates. And I think part of the reason for that is there's a lot of guidance in the leasing standard around discount rates. And I think the important thing to remember is that that guidance isn't really relevant to how you do the impairment test. So in both step one and step two of the impairment test, when you're thinking about the discount rate, it's got to be calibrated to the, the riskiness of the, the cash flow forecast that you're applying it to. Um, it also needs to reflect sort of current conditions, not the conditions that prevailed at the time that the lease was entered into. So, and in particular, in the case of step two, where it's a fair value model, you're very much needing to make sure you have market participant um, assumptions embedded in the uh, the discount rate calculation. Okay, I think that's helpful. So then, Steve, let me go back to you. We've been focused here on actually performing the impairment test, but then obviously after you perform it, there's accounting considerations, both if you have an impairment or if you don't. Why don't we start, though, with the case that I perform my test and I do have an impairment? What's the impact of that? Sure. So once you perform step two of the impairment test, you'd recognize an impairment charge to the extent that the, the carrying value of your asset group is greater than its fair value. And so any impairment charge would be allocated to all of the long-lived assets within the asset group, including your right-of-use assets on a relative fair value basis. Uh, one thing to keep in mind there is that no individual asset should be reduced to less than its fair value when performing that allocation. And for a right-of-use asset, 
the fair value would be determined by uh, by considering market participant assumptions and perspectives. You know, that is, what's the highest and best use of the right of use asset? And in some cases, this could be uh, very different from how the entity itself is actually using the leased asset or the leased space. So that's something to consider, to consider when uh, determining the fair value. So then, Steve, after you record the initial impairment, if you change the carrying amount of your ROU asset, now your amortization tables don't work anymore. So what should you do from a step two perspective or a day two perspective? Yeah. So when recognizing an impairment charge, the result is a uh, pretty significant change to the pattern of your expense recognition going forward, as you alluded to, Heather. So prior to impairment, the amortization of your right of use asset, it's really just the plug or the difference between your uh, straight line lease expense and the effective interest calculated on your lease liability. So this is what generates ultimately that straight line lease expense. On the other hand, once a right of use asset is impaired, the asset and liability become delinked and you oftentimes lose that straight line lease expense. And so what happens is that you continue to amortize your lease liability using the effective interest method. But now your right of use asset would just be amortized on a straight line basis based on its remaining useful life. And so again, this typically results in a much different pattern of expense recognition compared to your uh, your pre-impairment um, straight line lease expense that would have been recognized. Okay. And then how about the case where I did my impairment testing and I don't need to take an impairment charge? Am I done? Or are there other things that I should think about? Yeah, no. So there are, there are other considerations. So, you know, oftentimes... Uh, Companies will go through the impairment analysis and say, hey, my asset group, my asset group isn't impaired, but you don't just stop there. So in this scenario, although you're not recognizing an impairment charge, it might still be necessary to actually go and adjust the useful lives of your assets, including your right of use assets. And so there are a couple of different options for recognizing lease expense on an ongoing basis after you adjust the useful life of your right of use assets. One option is is very similar to the impairment model that we just discussed earlier, uh, where you lose your straight line lease expense recognition, and instead you, you'd recognize your, uh, your effective interest on the liability and amortize your right of use asset on a straight line basis, but over its shortened useful life. Another option um, would be that you could continue actually recognizing straight line lease expense, but just over the shorter life of the asset. The accounting and the mechanics for that get a, get a little bit quirky. And so we actually have a pretty helpful illustration in chapter, uh, chapter five of our PP&E guide. So I would highly encourage our listeners to, to check that out if they're thinking about going down that second path. Okay, that's helpful. And I think this whole area, obviously, a lot to think about is if you get into a scenario where you have a trigger and you need to test impairment. So I would encourage our listeners to check out our other resources. And, and we'll talk about those at the end. With that discussion on ROU impairment, why don't we turn to another topic that I know has we were getting more and more questions around, and that would be lease abandonments. So how do we think about the accounting for lease abandonment? Yeah, you're right, Heather. So in the, in the current environment, many companies are are beginning to reevaluate their real estate footprints, right? And so we've been receiving more and more questions about how to account for right of use assets uh, in scenarios where a company plans to either stop using an asset immediately or, or prior to the end of, of the lease term. And so in these situations, ASC 360 is clear that long-lived assets uh, should be accounted for as held and used until the company actually seizes use of the asset. And so, in other words, just because a company has plans at some point in the future to, to vacate a lease space or stop using a leased asset, the asset wouldn't be considered abandoned until the actual seize use date. And so, for right-of-use assets, this is generally when the lease property is vacated or the leased asset is no longer being used. 
one other item to note here that's that's come up relatively often in the current environment of forced shutdowns, temporarily idling an asset isn't an abandonment of the asset under 360. And the reason for this is that the entity eventually will uh, continue to generate economic benefits and use that lease asset in the future. So it's just a temporary idling. So the asset would still be considered to be held and used during that temporary shutdown period. So then, Steve, maybe actually going back to our first conversation, if I do make a decision that I'm going to abandon a lease, then would this be an indicator that I have a trigger for purposes of impairment testing? Potentially. So it'll be facts and circumstances based, but in a scenario where your right of use assets are a really large portion of your your asset group that you're assessing, it's possible that this this uh, decision could result in a triggering event. And you know, if that's the case, the company would have to go forth and perform steps one and steps two of the impairment test that that we discussed earlier. Um, and the reason for this is that uh, the plan to abandon a lease asset could be an indicator that the carrying amount of of the overall asset group is no longer recoverable. Okay, and then what if in that circumstance I conclude there's a trigger, I do my testing, but I don't have an impairment? Any considerations there? Yep. So, so similar considerations that we talked about earlier. So you have a plan to abandon, you ultimately determine that there's not an impairment. It might still be appropriate to adjust the remaining useful life of the right of use asset to, to reflect the period of time until you actually plan to, uh, to vacate the premises or stop using the asset. And to the extent that such an adjustment is made, you know, you'd then follow one of the two expense recognition options that we, we talked about earlier for short and useful lives. So then, Andreas, let's turn to our last topic, and it's another area which I know has come up more and more frequently given the current environment, and that would be around the implications of subleasing. So what can you share with us about the accounting in that area? Sure, Heather. So we're certainly getting quite a few questions around subleases. As Steve mentioned, a number of companies are rethinking their footprint, um, and so that logically leads you down the path of potentially trying to find someone to... uh, step into your shoes on a uh, on a particular lease. So a couple things to think about, and may, maybe it's best illustrated just with a quick example. So you can imagine a company that has a 10-story uh, building that they've been leasing for their corporate headquarters. Um, you know, they entered into that lease a number of years ago, and because it was a single lease and it was going to be used for a single purpose, they viewed all 10 floors as a, as a single lease lease object and under when adopting new lease standard, put up a a single asset for that. Well, so now in in light of the current circumstances, they decide, well, maybe I only need six floors of the building and I'm going to try to sublease the the other four. That will cause you to step back and say, well, maybe I now have two lease objects, one for the six floors and one for the four, because I'm not going to be using all 10 in the, uh, in the same way anymore. And uh, if you come to that conclusion, you then need to go through a process of uh, you know, allocating the, the right of use asset between the two uh, between the two pieces. And what, one of the reasons that's important is because if you go back to what is an asset group, asset group smallest level at which you have identifiable cash flows, well, it's quite possible that in this example that the four floor sublease is now its own asset group because its cash flows are going to be collecting rents from a third party, which presumably has little or nothing to do with the, the use of the other six floors. And so allocating the, the asset value between the two asset groups is going to be important in order to uh, perform a, uh, an impairment test. 
So then, Andreas, like many of the topics we talk about, this sounds like it's a particularly important area to make sure that you understand all the nuances to the transaction and really what is happening with that particular lease. That's right. I mean, maybe just to finish out that example. So let's say you do conclude you have two lease objects and now you have to allocate the value between the two. The, the question becomes, okay, typically when we do allocations, we do relative fair value, but then you say, well, but as of what date should I use the uh, relative fair value of the six floors back when I signed the lease, or should I do it as of today? And I think it's better to do it as of the, the date that the lease was originally signed, but in some circumstances that might be a long time ago, you may not have the relevant information, in which case... You know, using today's information is uh, is acceptable um, as well. That's helpful. And then, Andreas, anything else if you're dealing with a sublease situation that you should focus on? Yeah. So I, I think just like what Steve was discussing a few minutes ago, anytime you have some sort of a rethinking as to how you're using the asset, that may potentially be an indication that there's a, uh, a, a trigger. So something as significant as... Uh, subleasing the space, again, if the, the leased asset is a significant portion of the asset group, could uh, could be a triggering event. It uh, might also require you to reconsider the life. So if you continue on with my example, say that there was eight years left on the lease for the 10 floors, and I was only able to sublease the four floors for seven years, and I'd kind of concluded that no one was going to sign a one-year lease so that for the last year of the uh, of the head lease, those four floors are going to be vacant. Well, in that circumstance, I might need to change the life for those four floors from eight years, and reduce it down to, uh, down to seven. So Andreas, very helpful and definitely a lot for companies to think about as they're looking at their leases and the current environment and, and changing operations. Steve, if companies have more questions after listening to this, where where's a good place to go for more information? Sure. Yeah. So we uh, we recently updated and re-released our FAQ on, on lessee accounting for right of use assets and operating leases. Um, and that's a really comprehensive, uh, really comprehensive document. So I, I'd strongly encourage our readers to check that out. And then Chapter Five of our PP&E guide also has a lot of detailed, really good guidance um, for folks to read through, both both on impairment for right of use assets as well as impairment more generally. Okay, great. That's very helpful. So just before we wrap things up today, and Andreas has done this before. Given all that's going on in the world, we are now trying to focus on silver linings from the COVID crisis as part of our uh, podcast wrap-up. And I was thinking, we're recording this on July 1st, right before our firm shut down for a few days for July 4th. Obviously, this is a much different July 4th, but just curious if you guys have anything fun planned uh, to celebrate. So maybe, Steve, I'll start with you. Yeah, sure. So my, uh, my wife and I and our eight-month-old daughter like a lot of other people, we've been in quarantine for the past four months. And so our families over the past few weeks all went into quarantine separately. So uh, we're actually up here in Cape Cod now visiting visiting our families, which is great because we haven't seen them in, in quite a while. So it's great to uh, to be around the families and everybody's, you know, enjoying being around the baby and everything. So it's 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 been good. Well, and I'm sure you're appreciating a little help with the baby, too, after trying to work and take care of her. Yes. So um, that's an added bonus for you. Absolutely. And how about you, Andreas? I think given that summer has finally arrived, we're just going to uh, make our way to the shore this weekend. 
Very nice. Enjoy some nice weather. So, well, both, again, appreciate all the insight and thanks for joining me today. Sure. That does it for today. Thanks for joining me. Tune in again this Thursday for the next episode in our What's Next Summer series that covers aspects of reopening and what that means for controllers and their finance teams. This week's focus will be on business recovery and the new environment. So that you never miss an episode of any of our audio content, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.